Part 3 Implementation Chapter 12 Establishing Free Private Cities All human progress has taken place in such a way that a small minority began to deviate from the ideas and customs of the majority, until their example finally led the others to adopt the innovation. Ludwig von Mises, Economist and Philosopher Really new products usually only become established after they have been available for a while and everyone has been able to convince themselves of their benefits. Around 1900, if asked about their most preferred transportation improvement, most people probably would have answered, faster horses. Before its introduction, the fax machine was judged by the commissioned market research institutes as an unwanted gadget. If comparable surveys had been conducted before the first iPhone appeared, a handheld computer with which one can also make telephone calls, something similar may well have been the outcome. It is therefore unavoidable to not only describe the product free private city, but to make it a reality. Only then can people get a real sense of what it is. If new products are convincing, they can subsequently revolutionize entire markets. Today, virtually all cell phone manufacturers produce iPhone-like smartphones because nothing else is in demand. But how can free private cities be created? Why should existing states, whose consent is needed, get involved at all? As with the free imperial cities of the Middle Ages, there is only one reason, self-interest. States may agree to surrender part of their sovereignty over a given territory when they expect to benefit from it. Advantages for Host Countries Take a look at Hong Kong, Singapore, or Monaco. Near each of these city-states, a kind of belt of prosperity has grown up around them in the neighboring countries. Its inhabitants pay taxes in the neighboring countries. In addition, these city-states create many jobs for commuters from the surrounding countries who might otherwise have remained unemployed. If a free private city is created in a previously structurally weak or uninhabited area, then the host state has nothing to lose and everything to gain. But even in more densely populated areas, the economic benefits that the host state generates can be higher than before once a free private city has been established. In other cases, governments are ready to reform but face considerable obstacles and opposition to change in their own country. In such cases, free private cities can provide new opportunities without having to change the political system of the host state. There may also be special situations, such as the establishment of security zones or refugee cities in former civil war zones or the desire to try out alternative solutions in special zones. In such cases, it may be advantageous to entrust the administration to an independent, impartial private company. Special Economic Zones as Trailblazers after all, setting up a free private city is easier the more precedents there are for it. The first time is, as is so often the case, the hardest. However, a special feature of our time, namely the existence of special economic zones, might help. Whereas 50 years ago there were hardly any special economic zones, today their number has risen to around 4,300. 
The fact that special economic zones exist at all is already a de facto admission by states that their traditional regulations are apparently not the optimum environment for companies and investors. It is also the unspoken admission that across-the-board uniformity is apparently not the last word either. Basically, the establishment of a free private city is only the continuation of this development. It is logical because many states have had to realize that the special economic zones they have set up are not in demand. The same applies to many ambitious new city projects. The reason for this is that people and companies alike prefer an environment that offers security, predictability, as well as economic and personal freedom. Tax and customs relief is also available elsewhere, which in and of itself is no longer sufficient to generate significant new settlements or investments. And often the long-term stability of such zones is questionable because the respective rulers or legislative bodies can change their minds again after the next election. Free private cities address these issues by creating a reliable and stable framework secured in corresponding agreements with the host state and offering maximum economic and personal freedom in addition to guaranteed security. The operator of the free private city is concluding a contract with the host state. It may be necessary for the latter to amend its laws first, possibly even its constitution, in order to make such an agreement possible. In a sense, therefore, free private cities are only a further development of special economic zones and can probably be conveyed more easily in that context, special economic zone plus, especially since states are reluctant to enter completely new territory. It is in the nature of things that countries with problems will more likely be on the lookout for new ideas. The pressure to act is not yet great enough for the others. The first free private cities will therefore not be located in the most attractive places in the most stable countries. That will be an inevitable challenge at first. If the trailblazers succeed, however, it will be easier to convince other countries to follow. In practice, the more investment the operator can promise, the more governments will be inclined to agree to the establishment of a free private city. It is therefore advisable to organize an appropriate volume of investment before approaching potential host nations. The Agreement It is unlikely that a free private city will be able to negotiate complete independence from the host state. In addition to territorial sovereignty, defense, foreign policy, the state will probably reserve the continued application of certain legal norms, such as the validity of the human rights enshrined in its constitution, continued respect for its international agreements, and criminal codes. The free private city should be able to cope with this without giving up its essence. In this respect, the free private city will not be able to grant its own citizenship. Residents will keep their own. In such cases, however, some interests may conflict with those of the host state. Potential disputes should be settled in advance. This concerns, for example, the case of citizens of the host state potentially ridding themselves of their tax obligations by moving to the private city. Another conflict could arise if goods and services are offered much cheaper in the free private city than in the host country, for example, petrol, cigarettes, due to tax and regulatory advantages. This can cause economic difficulties for the host country's businesses close to the border 
which in turn could cause political problems for the free private city. Both situations can be regulated in such a way that the host state does not suffer any disadvantage. For example, the agreement with the host country could stipulate that certain products may only be purchased by residents of the private city and citizens of the host country continue to be subject to its taxes, like the French in Monaco. Despite all the willingness to compromise, certain autonomy rights would have to be reserved or the establishment of a free private city would no longer offer a competitive advantage. These include 1. The free private city has the power to regulate business and commercial law at its own discretion. This includes labor law, construction law, and environmental law regulations, which facilitate the establishment and implementation of companies. This also includes the possibility of concluding transactions in any currency and being able to set up companies quickly and easily. 2. The free private city may establish its own tax, customs, and social regime independent of the regulations of the host state. 3. The acquisition of property, including real estate, is possible without further hurdles and in a legally secure manner in accordance with the rules of the free private city. Such acts shall be recognized by the host state. 4. The legal position of the city residents under the residence contract is recognized by the host state, even if some residents are also its own citizens. 5. Justice, police, and administration are carried out under the city's own control and by their own staff. 6. The host state and its organs shall not interfere in the internal affairs of the city, its inhabitants, or businesses. 7. Fundamental freedoms such as freedom of opinion, freedom of assembly, and equality before the law are guaranteed even if the host nation has conflicting legislation. 8. The free private city is entitled to expel unwanted persons or to deny them entry, even if they are citizens of the host state. 9. The status of the free private city is guaranteed by the host state for a long period, ideally 99 years or longer. 10. All investments made in the free private city are subject to special, contractually guaranteed investor protection. What degree of inner autonomy the free private city actually will have is ultimately a matter of negotiation. Here, too, the existence of successful private cities facilitates the starting position for subsequent projects. A proven method of optimizing the situation is to agree on a most favored nation clause. That is, the free private city is treated in the same way as any other country that has a contract with the host state. All the benefits granted to other countries in this respect, therefore, also apply to the private city. An extended Most Favored Nation Clause could even mean that everything that is permissible in at least one country in the world could be allowed in the free private city. This would considerably increase the scope for regulation. Excessively clever legal moves or regulations in the treaty that take advantage of the host state are not recommended. These will come to light at some point, and political pressure in the host state to terminate or amend the treaty will follow. The authorities will hardly be able to escape such public pressure, especially if the corresponding contractual clause 
actually constitutes a unilateral disadvantage for the host state. They will then act, even if the contract with the free private city should theoretically preclude any such development. Any subsequent unilateral revocation or amendment of the agreement by the host state is tantamount to expropriation. Therefore, a very crucial issue is investment protection, which should extend to all residents, entrepreneurs, and owners in the free private city, and not only to investors from abroad. States often conclude bilateral investment protection agreements with foreign companies investing on their territory. As a rule, it is agreed that a recognized arbitral tribunal shall be called upon in the event of a conflict. The operator of the free private city adopts this approach, but extends its scope to all companies based in the city and to all contractors. By expressly agreeing to investment protection and arbitration with the host state, these rules apply to all residents, even if they are citizens of the host state. In addition, the operating company may establish itself in a country that already has a bilateral or multilateral investment protection agreement with the host country. As a foreign company, it is then protected by the relevant contracts and can thus shield the free private city. Such intergovernmental agreements are quite common. They usually provide for arbitration proceedings. As a rule, their judgments are also enforceable, since most states are contracting parties to the New York Convention. Such investment protection mechanisms are the essential means of securing a free private city against a sudden change of mind and action by the host state in breach of contract. In practice, they also work because, although the state can theoretically disregard its obligations and ignore arbitration decisions, the injured parties can then seize the foreign assets of the host state. Moreover, it will then be very difficult for the state to attract future foreign investors, including buyers of its government bonds. Dealing with Conflicts Despite a written agreement with the host country, there may be differences in interpretation of the contents of the contract. It is also possible that new issues arise which are not expressly regulated in the contract and which lead to conflicts of interest. This calls for sensitivity on the part of the operator towards the host state. It is important that due to the factual and geographical proximity to the host state, the two administrations meet regularly. In this way, current issues and problems can be discussed and possible conflicts can be identified and resolved at an early stage. It is advisable to keep a precise record of such meetings and keep detailed minutes. A Monegasque diplomat pointed out to me that it helped Monaco in its dispute with France in the early 1960s that Monaco had archived and could consult all the minutes of previous bilateral meetings and the decisions taken there, even if these dated back more than a hundred years. In the event of a dispute, it is indispensable to take disputes about the content of the contract and mutual rights and obligations before an internationally recognized arbitration court. The International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes, ICSID, of the World Bank in Washington is the most important institution for disputes between foreign investors and the host countries in which they have interests. 
Other important international arbitration tribunals are the International Chamber of Commerce, ICC, in Paris, the American Arbitration Association, AAA, in New York, the Singapore International Arbitration Center, SIAC, and the London Court of International Arbitration, LCIA. A clause to this effect should already be part of the original agreement. It is then more difficult for the host state to simply ignore judgments and might even lead to disadvantages in international trade. It is important to keep in mind, even in conflicts, that the free private city still offers an advantage for the host state. China, for example, has not fully absorbed Hong Kong and destroyed its administrative structures, knowing that Hong Kong, as a special administrative zone, has greater benefits for China than if it were an ordinary provincial city. A well-positioned free private city will have a similar effect on the host state. Previous Residence The ideal case, founding a free private city in a completely uninhabited area, will probably be the rare exception. It is more likely that at least a few citizens of the host country will be residents in the designated area. This raises the question of their legal status in the free private city. The simplest and most obvious solution would be to have them sign a citizenship contract like the new settlers. But what happens to those who don't? Basically, nobody should be forced to join the free private city. It should remain completely voluntary. In principle, there are only three possibilities. One, those who do not wish to sign the contract must leave the territory and may receive compensation. Two, previous residents who are not willing to contract are still only subject to the legal system and the executive bodies of the host state. Three, the contract shall be imposed on this population in whole or in part. In all cases, the legal basis would be the agreement with the host state, which regulates this. None of the solutions is optimal. The first forces people to leave their ancestral home against their will. The second creates two classes of residents, creates free rider effects, and endangers internal independence by allowing a gateway for interference by state organs of the host state. And the third contradicts the principle of voluntariness. Nevertheless, the latter solution is probably preferable, as it is less far-reaching than the first solution, ensures the legal equality among residents, which is vital to the free private city model, respects the validity of the rules in force in the free private city, and does not make the inhabitants any worse off. Recall that at any time before the free private city arrived, all manner of changes in the laws of the host state were also possible. It is probably also the only realistic option in those cases in which entire municipalities or cities decide that they want to become free private cities, a decision likely to be made by heretofore traditional methods of political decision-making, that is, by local council decision or referendum, so that there will always be a minority of unwilling people present. The municipality may offer them a district of their own, internal resettlement, or consider other compensatory measures for private city opponents willing to leave.